Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is John Day, who's a lecturer in English at King's College London, and also the author of a couple of books, the most recent of which is called Homing, on Pigeons, Dwellings and Why We Return. I've known John for a bit, and I hadn't known among his accolades is he is a pigeon fancier. The first time we've had such a one here, knowingly. <laughs> John, your relationship with pigeons begins with a bird called Psycho. Yes, that's right. Tell us about Psycho. This is the seed of this book, isn't it's it? The, it's the genesis of it, yeah, and of my obsession with pigeons, I suppose. So when I was about, I suppose, 10 years old, my friend Nick and I used to rescue pigeons from the streets of London, partly because we didn't know any better, but partly also because I think we were kind of fascinated with the natural world and you didn't get much opportunity living in central London to encounter it other than through pigeons and similarly reviled creatures. So we used to rescue birds and try and sort of rehabilitate them. Often we failed, but Psycho was a bird that thrived under our care and we, we, we fixed his broken wing. And then we tried to train him to home to his loft because the other thing we were kind of obsessed with or interested in was the homing instinct that pigeons are famous for. And what we didn't know then or what I didn't know then was that pigeons home to the territory in which they're born and, and they're imprinted on their home territory, their home loft, as pigeon fanciers call the sheds in which they keep their birds, around six weeks old. And after that time, no matter how far away you take them or how long you keep them away from that home, they will usually try and return to that place of origin. So they have this kind of inbuilt drive to go to the place in which they themselves were kind of born usually. So Psycho was a bird that we, we tried to yeah, heal and, and did manage to kind of let, let him fly again. And then we let him out one day and he, rather than coming back to his rabbit hutch that we kept him in, he, he flew off. And ever since then, I've kind of been yeah, obsessed. But it wasn't until quite recently that I was able to reanimate my interest in pigeons. Yeah, and that reanimation kind of coincided with a change in your own life, didn't it? I mean, it's sort of early middle age, settling down, new oh, house. <laughs> I say very early middle age. <laughs> yeah, no, that's... Late that's, youth, maybe. Late youth, God, I'll, I'll take late youth, yeah. I, I mean, I was struck by, so a couple of, about four, five years ago now, I was working as a bicycle courier for a long time, actually, and that's as you know, the subject of, of my first book. And I was kind of traveling a lot or going on journeys a lot and living this kind of footloose life. And then my partner and I had a baby and moved to the suburbs in the usual middle-aged way and had a garden for the first time. And so I had this kind of, these, these dreams of going on one last epic adventure. I don't know, I kind of got obsessed of sailing videos and so on. Early Ulysses. Early Ulysses, yeah. Well, so many stories are about leaving home and coming back to it. And I I kind of wanted to do something similar. But I realised, and as my girlfriend told me, I couldn't sail. So what business did I have trying to kind of imagine an epic adventure? So I instead... As I you said, tragically, you you said the book, you'd have the fantasy of building your own boat and sailing off to the Hebrides or something. She said, you can't even drive. (laughs) Yeah, 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 she did. She's an earthy realist, my my dear girlfriend, Natalia. And she's quite rightly pointed out that... And also that it would be a kind of dereliction of duty. I mean, there's so many... I think that idea of the onset of family life, the, 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 the kind of petty anxieties I was dealing with, I suppose, or thinking about when I start taking up pigeon keeping again are familiar to loads of people and they are absurd of course the, the, the fact that the pram the pram in the hall being a kind of something that will limit your your freedoms in all sorts of ways um, not just creative but kind of in terms of journeys and adventures and of course there's these long 
So I suppose one thing I was interested in about pigeons very quickly was the idea that they commit you to a place and make you stay there. They require quite a lot of care and attention and you have to kind of, you know, clean them out every day and feed them and fly them and train them. And gradually, I suppose I was won over by that nostophilia, by that idea that that staying put was just as rewarding and kind of interesting as, as going on some epic journey. And so it's really a book, it's kind of an anti-travel book. It's a book about what it means to stay in one place. Was there a bit of you that thought, I mean, because you describe how you said, I, I wanted to get some pigeons and start keeping pigeons and that this would help to make my new house feel more like a home. Yeah. Was there a bit of you also that thought, there's a book in this? <laughs> there, well, initially not a book, but it is, it's true that, so the, the first two pigeons I bought, I went up to the Blackpool homing show of the year which is um, the homing world show of the year which is a kind of crust of the pigeon world it's called a, a columbidae jamboree where people come and exhibit their pigeons and they're judged as in crufts on kind of looks and breeding and so on but there's also lots of breeders there who are selling kind of ex- extraordinary expensive pedigree birds and I went up there a few years ago just after we'd moved house because I thought maybe there's a piece in this. Like I, I, I write sort of journalism and stuff too, and I and I thought this is a kind of strange, eccentric world. And I'd always had this interest in pigeons, but I had no intention of buying a bird particularly when I when I first went up there. And yet I came home on the train that evening with with a pair of Gabby Van Danabeels pedigree racing pigeons, and had nowhere to keep them at first. So we we kind of put them in this little lean-to next to our kitchen for a few days and Natalia was very tolerant of that too and then built them aloft and gradually realised that yeah there probably was a, a bigger story in this in this world in this subculture. Yeah one of the things that has you know surprised me reading your book was how damn hardy pigeons are because you know I wouldn't have thought you could just stick a bird in a box and carry it from one end of the country to the other or whatever but these things do just travel around in shoeboxes and sit in them for days and live in your lean-to yeah. quite happily interesting creatures I think partly because they are they occupy this interesting kind of hinterland between the domestic and the wild so they're not quite pets and they're not quite they don't live happily in you know in the house you you would probably not want them flying around your living room and yet they biologists use the phrase synanthropes to describe the way in which feral pigeons live alongside humans in an urban context and that's because all pigeons are descendants of Columba Livia, which is the rock dove, which lives on cliff faces in its natural state. And so urban environments are very kind of conducive to their nesting and, they, you know, the, the, the fact that high-rises look a bit like cliffs and have ledges and so on. But secondarily to that, and the domesticated strains of pigeon that have been bred over the last sort of 10,000 years do have this curiously kind of intimate relationship with 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 humans so that they 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 certainly you know they're quite used to being placed in baskets and you know transported to other parts of the country places they've never been to before before being released to fly home and you know so taking them home in a cardboard box is 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 probably not that strange for them i suppose you actually say that something that maybe synanthropy or whatever the expression would be between humans and pigeons is the oldest well I, i assume dogs were the oldest kind of partner species yeah well, P- are, pigeons goes back further i think there are some there are, i mean there were competing claims and i suppose how can we ever know but there's certainly plenty of evidence that the sumerians were the first to domesticate the pigeons about ten thousand years before the birth of christ which i suppose is about i mean dogs have been have been living with humans for equally as long possibly and the horse too but i mean pigeons are kind of this weirdly uncelebrated companion species there's such a rich literature of you know horse writing and dog writing and hawk writing and so on and yet i think when i started researching pigeon fancying and the relationship between humans pigeons i was struck by just how little there is written about them even though pigeons have been you know equally important for 
for, for, for humankind for at least several thousand years. And one thing that someone pointed out to me the other day is that pigeons, like horses and like, I suppose, actually only really like horses, have an architecture associated with them, certainly in Europe and in the Middle East too. So the idea of the pigeon loft being a kind of typology or having a typology, if you go to the south of France, you'll see these buildings in every, you know, in the ground, grounds of every grand house, a, a, an elevated shed that stops the rats getting up with you know or in 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 britain the tradition is i suppose the you know the south the, the gable end um lofts that you see in suffolk often and so like the like the horse stables the pigeons are one of the few creatures that that have this kind of extant architecture association with which i think demonstrates how kind of entwined they are with human lives and yet this is this is something that hasn't been given a great deal of of, of attention literarily anyway there isn't well, it, a great it sounds like it's kind of an oral tradition as well because you describe how when you were setting up there wasn't a whole sort of shelf of books saying how to build a loft, what to do with your pigeon. You had to... <laughs> yeah, it's really curious that. And I suppose, I think it probably has to do with class, the fact that the, the kind of field sports of which, you know, fishing writing, hawk writing, uh, the kinds of, yeah, and, and as I say, horse, horse, writing about horses too, is a rich literary tradition because it's been uh, activities practiced by kind of aristocrats for thousands of years, whereas pigeon racing in particular has always been a working-class pursuit. It was invented in Belgium in the mid-19th century by coal miners who spent their days underground and kind of saw in the pigeons a, a symbol of release. And there's a lovely quotation from an article written by Charles Dickens about travelling through Spitalfields in East London in kind of the mid-19th century where he talks about watching pigeon flyers fly their birds from the tops of their kind of smoky bowers and seeing in the birds symbols of release, release and liberation. So it's always been kind of a weirdly urban activity. And also it's kind of only the pigeon... So I've, I've spoken a bit about the, the, the closeness with which pigeons live with, with humans in pre-modern times or pre, yeah, kind of relatively recent times, um, where they were used mainly for food and fertiliser, was of course kind of reanimated in the last sort of 200 years by the, the, their homing instinct and ability, which was always used. Pliny talks about pigeons being used for, as messengers to break sieges and so on. But really this kind of extraordinary explosion in interest and Baroque stories that sprung up around it comes with, in the sort of 19th century, when kind of fledgling technological networks were springing up across the globe but yet weren't quite perfected so so you get things like Paul Julius Reuter a young entrepreneur who realized that there was a sort of 50 mile gap in the telegraph network between Germany and Belgium and establishing some flocks of pigeons that would then plug that gap and he had a monopoly of all information traveling between the two countries for a very brief period I think but then that became the Reuters news agency so I kind of began to uncover all these stories about and yeah, as I say, some of them are kind of bizarre and beautifully eccentric, but the pigeon used as a kind of adjunct to other kinds of technologies. And that's really when they came into their own. And of course, the, the, the most famous or well-known examples of that activity are um, pigeons being used as messengers during the wars. Yeah, you, had to, you have a lovely quote from, I think, Chief General Staff. He says, if, if we lost all the technologies... You know, we were only able to hang on to one. It would be pigeons. The pigeons is the one I would go for. He said, "Yeah, yeah." And and there was, of course, you know, the, the pigeons were used in the First World War to communicate between the trenches and, and 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 sort of behind the lines. But they were also used extraordinarily in the Second World War. Both bomber crews were equipped with pigeons, so that if they were 
you know, shot down and didn't have their radio cease to work, they could release their position. But the, the, the most extraordinary story was that of Operation Columba, where 16,000 pigeons were dropped over occupied Europe over the course of the latter half of the war on tiny parachutes. And then they'd land in sort of fields with a little questionnaire attached to them saying, can you tell us about local troop movements yes, in your area? Nazis. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, eventually back, yeah. <laughs> they, they did become, they, they, they were using them to sort of double cross the enemies. I mean, lots of them, I think, were eaten by kind of hungry French farmers, but some of them did make their way back to London and, and other lofts around the country with kind of important yeah intelligence so I think and and of course in the post that's part of the partly the reason pigeon racing was so popular in the post-war years because they were considered heroes they were awarded the Dickin medal was, was awarded mostly which is the the, the medal for animal gallantry was awarded mostly to pigeons I think in the post second world war years and so the the recent turn when I think it is a recent turn to think of them as kind of rats with wings and to revile them is is you know we've kind of lost sight of the fact that in the in the 50s and 60s pigeons were hugely popular creatures and, and in fact pigeon racing was apparently the most popular sport by participation in Britain in those years now this like the fact that pigeons do this because they seem to be sort of not quite unique, but very nearly unique among other, you know, you describe how some some animals have navigate, amazing navigational instincts, migratory birds, but all of those are sort of seasonally dependent or whatever. Why is it pigeons, is it, does anyone have an understanding of why pigeons almost uniquely do care about home and want to get there, whatever the weather, whatever the time of year? Yeah, well, I think it's a kind of a combination of, I think it's mainly to do with their domestication. So feral pigeons have homing abilities kind of latent ones but they're not particularly finely developed and there are loads of varieties of fancy pigeon that are all genetically identical so Charles Darwin who was a keen pigeon fancier was kind of obsessed with the variety he saw in the various fancy breeds in all the London clubs he was member a member of so things like you know fantails that have these very pronounced fantails as the name implies and pouters who have these big puffed up chests like breeds of dogs they all look incredibly different and the question at the time was whether they were all the same species or whether they're derived from different wild stock and none of those other varieties have a particularly pronounced homing ability so if you take a fantail and release it from five miles away it will just you know won't come home it will get lost and and so there's, it's obviously the case that pigeons share with those remarkable um, migratory songbirds or indeed things like the Manx Shearwater, these incredible um, epic kind of seabird journeyers, a kind of inbuilt physiology which allows them to perform this trick. But the the, the fact that, as you say, they're not confined to, a, to sort of seasonal migration patterns and that home for them is a particular place, which and, it's, and I think that's mainly due to the fact that they breed all the year round, unlike songbirds and other creatures so they, they don't have a, a breeding season and so home is always the same place for them so they always come back and they, they'll, ha- they'll have you know if you let them they'll breed all the year round and quite how they home is you know one of the most kind of enduring mysteries within animal navigation and it's extraordinary that it's still unsolved really although there are various theories as to how they might do it well you, they've got some of the way through haven't they Sorry. so because you I mean, what are, what are the current, you know, for, <laughs> so for listeners who aren't totally up to date on, on pigeon? Well, the problem is kind of a unique one, and it's really it's really fa- a fascinating field of research. So uh, originally, Darwin believed that pigeons, and most biologists believed in the 19th century, that pigeons, like, like lots of insects, navigated by what's called, what's it called, dead reckoning. Navigated by what's called dead reckoning, or what biologists nowadays call path integration, which is the idea that if you leave a, a home site and keep track of the distances and turns that you make on the journey out you can use a basic simple trigonometry to work out where your what direction you have to head straight in to get back so that kind of navigation is 
conducted completely irrespective of the environment you're walking, you're moving through. But of course, it depends on you keeping track of the journey out. And there's lots of evidence that ants do this. So they've done some experiments where you fit kind of tiny stilts to one side of an ant. I love the experiments. <laughs> I know, kind of ants on stilts. I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what Darwin thought pigeons did as well. And so it's quite obviously quite an easy thing to test for. So they, they got some pigeons and put them in a revolving, a darkened revolving drum and took them away from their home loft. And when they released these birds from a place they'd never been to before, they were perfectly able to home unimpeded. So clearly that's not what's happening. And so more recently, various a model of animal navigation called the map and compass model has kind of held sway, and that's, what's, that's what contemporary research is trying to kind of explain. So to, to navigate from home from a place that you've not been to before, which is crucial because that's an ability pigeons have and, and ants, for instance, don't, or bees don't, you need to have two mechanisms. You need to have a map and a compass. And the, the compass obviously allows you to maintain a directional bearing once you've decided where... You, you're going or headed to and the map allows you to know where you are in relation to your home target and if you have the compass but not the map you know it's no good because you might even though you know where north is you don't know where whether you have to head north or south to get home and so for for about the last sort of 100 years of animal research the the, the maps uh, sorry the compasses that that pigeons like all songbirds use has been quite well established so we now know that there's a there's a probably the most prominent researcher in this field was a guy called Gustav Kramer who did various experiments on songbirds where he, he kept them in cages and fed them from one area or not oh, sorry he kept songbirds in cages and realized that during the migratory period they would congregate on one side of the cage that corresponded to the direction that they would have to go in when well that they would want to go in when they were released and they would do that irrespective of what they could see of the outside world and he coined the term zugenru to to describe this 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 movement anxiety this restlessness that the sparrows and so on that he was looking at not sparrows probably Anyway, the birds he was looking at, yeah. Yeah. Insert migratory bird here. Insert migratory bird here. And then he did some experiments on pigeons where he fed them from various compass points, again, in isolation, and realised that they too, like... So he he concluded that songbirds could detect the the, the Earth's magnetic forces, and that was providing them with a a, a map. And there's plenty of evidence that that, that pigeons too have the ability to do that. They also have an extraordinarily well-developed sun azimuth compass. So you can do what's called clock-shifting pigeons. So you can artificially expose them to a, a, a kind of fake sun in a, in a loft that gradually shifts its time so that it's, you know, coming up eventually. You're to basically say, giving them jet lag. Giving them jet lag, exactly, yeah. yeah. So you do that and then you take those pigeons away from the home loft and release them and they'll fly off in a direction that's predictably deflected from what you would expect them to do because they think it's a different, yeah, they think... So they, they basically mastered longitude, before. Is it longitude? Is it were, longitude? Yeah. I thought that was the thing you had. Yes, to that's right. Yeah. yeah, so they have it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, longitude. Yeah. So rather than using Harrison's sea clock or you know the <laughs> sympathy powder of stabbing a dog, they have this incredibly accurate chronometer, internal chronometer that allows them to compare the height of the sun at the site that they're released from and the height of the sun at home and use that to get a, a directional bearing. And so, as I say, that's all quite well established. Interestingly, Kramer himself, you get lots of these stories in pigeon research, was, was, died when he fell from a cliff when he was collecting young pigeons to research on. There's all these kind of weird Baroque stories. That yes, I did. <laughs> that bit of the book, I was like, ooh. <laughs> was guy. it worth it? Yeah, yeah. quite. You <laughs> would think, I mean, he was the great, yeah. I think it probably was. Well, maybe not his death. But. So the, the, the map is, the, the compass is quite well accepted now as a mechanism. 
but the map has proved far more controversial. And there have been various... So Kramer, I think, himself proposed that they may use a magnetic map as well as a magnetic compass because the Earth's magnetic field fluctuates and, and has intensities that are detectable by certainly by uh, human kind of devices. And he thought that maybe the pigeons were tapping into this as well. There have been proposals that they use a visual map, and they certainly do use a visual map around the loft. So for kind of 10 miles around the loft, they, have, they navigate by pilotage. And you know this because they always take the same routes home, essentially. And there's some amazing research done in the Oxford Animal Navigation Lab, which has videos of pigeons taking the right roundabout exit for home and so on. <laughs> but all of those things have been proved kind of not, not to be at least the sole answer because, you know, you fit pigeons with opaque lenses and they can still home back to their loft even though they can't then get well, inside. Well, the smell thing that was extraordinary. The smell thing is the most remarkable thing. So, so consensus seems to be kind of coalescing around the idea that pigeons use an olfactory map. And I want to convey quite how kind of bizarre this idea is because it's not that pigeons are able to smell a kind of beacon. You know, they're not smelling where their home loft is on the winds and it's not that their home is kind of has an odor and um, an atmospheric odor that's that's blown to 700 them. miles <laughs> quite <laughs> exactly it's not like us smelling you know bacon in the kitchen and coming downstairs for it the theory is that so there's a scientist called floriano papi and um his lab in the 70s con- you know conducted some fairly brutal experiments on pigeons where they severed their olfactory nerves and took them away to unfamiliar release sites and released them and found that none of them could home and then, so he, he, he sort of decided that smell probably had something to do with this mechanism, although quite ha- in what capacity was still mysterious. And so he then proposed another experiment where he took young pigeons from just hatched and brought them up in a loft that was completely isolated from the outside atmosphere. And when the wind blew outside the loft on the north-south axis, he would invert that wind within the loft through a system of kind of ducts and fans. So it would blow, blow 180 degrees deflected from that. So when the, blue, when the wind blew from the north in the loft, the pigeons were exposed to a wind blowing from the south. And they were able to see outside, so they were able to kind of look at the clouds and the direction of the wind and, and the sun as well during this time. And then he found that if you took those young pigeons that had never been outside before and released them from an unfamiliar release site, they would take off, deflected 180 degrees away from the direction you would expect them to fly off in on the north-south axis. So... And this this study has been replicated a few times since. And the theory is that pigeons use what's called a gradient map that's composed of environmental odours to work out... So if you imagine, in a very straightforward example, there would be two axes, north, south, east, west. And on one of those, there might be the smell of, I don't know, carbon monoxide from a kind of volcanic range somewhere thousands of miles to the south. And on the other one, perhaps, the smell of a pine forest in, you know, depths of Europe that are blowing. And... The pigeons are sensitive, and, and of course, the, the, the likelihood is that they're using hundreds of these compounds. But the pigeons are kind of detecting the changing intensities of those odours as they're taken away from their home release site to work out in which direction they have to head. So they'll sort of fly up something like an osmotic gradient. They'll just be like exactly head for the pine right. forest, and the stronger it gets, the more they go. Exactly right, exactly. And then, or, or obviously, that... that presupposes that they need to be aware of what direction the winds are coming from as well so that they can kind of account for the fact that if it's a north wind particularly blowing strongly that would have an impact possibly on the intensity of the north wind odor as it were so it's a hugely complicated model but it's been fairly well accepted now there's a there's a guy called Woolraff, a german biologist who drove around a fake loft in germany collecting air samples and did gas spectrometry on them and fed that data into a kind of computational model and from that model his kind of digital pigeons were able to home successfully so clearly it's possible the data is it would work in a kind of theoretical sense and and um yeah that seems to be the most likely scientific explanation for how they do it
which but is beautiful. I think. It is beautiful, but there's also a sense, I mean, certainly I feel like in your book, there's a sense that the sort of magic and magical thinking that surrounds it, you know, the playing, the idea of home and the fact that, you know, people in the fancy are sort of superstitious, aren't they? Very and much, indeed, yeah. pigeons are superstitious, so even more remarkable. <laughs> yeah, well, the Skinner research, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, I suppose partly what attracted me or what I found about it that I've loved is the is the mystery of it. The fact that, you know, you take these birds somewhere and release them and you don't know what's happened to them on the way. You don't know where they've gone or what routes they've taken or the journeys they've taken. And so it's not much of a spectator sport, pigeon flying. You know, you just sit in your garden waiting for them to come back. But but it's this kind of imaginative interest that all the pigeon flyers that I hang out with display. And of course, it creates space for kind of wacky scientific theories and research too so there's a long tradition of kind of psychic theories of pigeon homing that I was kind of enamored with and there's a there's a a biologist called Rupert Sheldrake who I went to talk to in the book who has a theory of pigeon homing which is connected with his kind of grand theory of everything which is called morphic resonance or morphogenetic resonance and he has the idea that that pigeons kind of don't home to a particular topographic location geographic location but they have this intense kind of entangled psychic connection with their home loft so he proposed an experiment whereby rather than taking pigeons away from their lofts you take the lofts away from the pigeons and fly them through and see if they see if they can make their way home it's a wonderfully exotic sort of description of how he tries to do that and then he sticks the lofts on a boat but then the boat gets commandeered by someone else who hasn't been able to complete his research yeah he's had a few iterations of the experiment and they've all been kind of inconclusive so far one yeah as you say one on a boat that chugged off into the North Sea in the middle of November when pigeons aren't inclined particularly to fly through heavy weather. So that failed. So I think the jury's still out on, on Sheldrake's theories. He has a, a kind of great tra- track record in, in biology. He, he was a Cambridge scientist for many years working on epigenetics at a time when people thought it was preposterous that the environment could have any impact on the expression of genes. And he was proved right on that. So who knows, there might be scope for a morphogenetic theory of pigeon homing to be proved right eventually too. Of course, it's the powerful kind of metaphorical nature of that relationship that I found most kind of beguiling at the end, actually, really. The, the, the pigeons, like humans, have this kind of intense desire to return to the places that they feel safe and happy. And that kind of relationship that the pigeon flies in the club have with their birds that is not quite pet and owner it's kind of mutually constituted because of course the birds are are keeping them at home too and the birds are free to fly away if they want to at any stage so it's more like I suppose the relationship between kind of beekeepers and their bees than it is between a cat owner or a dog owner and their cat cats are pretty free range aren't they they are very free range but you I mean talking all through the book you know you use the pigeons as you say as a sort of way of thinking about home and there's a kind of literary thread that goes through Zebald and Freud and Heidegger and you know you you're you're sort of you've you've covered very well the territory of you know what home has meant yeah you know and did the experience of having these pigeons change your understanding or view of home or your home maybe both I, th- I think yeah it did both in the sense that I kind of as I said at the beginning reconciled myself to the fact that I had an obligation to stay still to stay put and to build something you know that's a that's a kind of relatively new experience for me I've, be- I've got into gardening as well as a, as a oh, kind of <laughs> <comes to> us <laughs> all. sorry <laughs> and but but more than that the kind of my, my reading around the history of home I do think reinforced a sense of home's kind of fragility and in fact the possible dangers of thinking of a life in terms of home and rootedness so so partly i suppose the 
what some of the anxieties I was exploring in the beginning of the novel had to do with both the housing crisis but also the political dimensions of home being a, a word or a term or an idea that excludes people as much as it includes them. The, the asking where someone's home is might imply you know, belonging of some in, 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 in some sense and that, that can be used for kind of good or for ill, I suppose. And, yeah, you talk and, about Heidegger as quite a, quite a good yeah. example of how that... Can, can, can drift ways. into kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah fascism. I mean, it, so Heidegger's obsession with the unrootedness of, 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 of mankind, the unhomeness of contemporary life, I think, you know, was directly, was embraced by kind of Nazi ideology to a greater or lesser extent. And I think that's kind of obviously deeply troubling and, and, and has analogues elsewhere. I mean, one thing that I did, hadn't realised, I suppose, before I thought started writing the book was, that home is quite historically contingent. The idea of the, the home being a place in which you live in a domestic context, removed from public life, removed from village life, is a kind of 17th century idea, really, that, that, that begins in, in Holland, in these kind of... The bourgeois urban community starts to live in a, a, a dwelling that's separate from the, the workshop or the shop or whatever, and lives with just their family. You know, before that, people would have lived with their animals and even servants who you would have shared beds with and stuff so there's a kind of weird intimacy to public life that gradually gets um, yes, the idea of privacy is a relatively recent kind of invention yeah, yeah and this has impacts across the arts of course both in the kind of interior paintings that that period of dutch uh, art is celebrated for but also the novel is a form that kind of emerges well obviously many what's forces. the name of it? is it weems the dickens character who has his has actually a kind of more or less a drawbridge in front of his sure, house there, know, was a, there was one of the um <laughs> Remember who he is. Anyway, the character, is character in Dickens, whose home right. really, more or less literally is his castle. Yeah, yeah, and, and and the kind of interiority, people becoming interested in interior design and the interiority of the mind. That, of course, you know, one of the things that the novel does is pay attention to the insides of people in a kind of new way and novel way. And of course, it's a, a form that is read at home, is, is is read in private, is read, isn't performed necessarily. Is kind of so all of these kind of historical transitions became very interesting to me and and I don't know kind of what the outcome of them is or whether we are living through a kind of convulsive time in relation to our understandings of what home is but it seems to be a term and an idea that crops up in all sorts of different contexts in both you know positive and negative ways and the conversation about kind of citizens of everywhere or citizens of nowhere that seems to dominate political discussions at the moment has something to do with you touched on that very early in the book but it's something you don't sort of go massive on. Was there a kind of conscious effort to try and keep the sort of Brexity, citizens of nowhere, the contemporary politics out of the book? Because obviously it's something that, I think sense, it's, is available. You know, you could yeah. very much go... Did you have to work quite hard to avoid... No, I didn't have to work it at all. I mean, in a sense, it's a book that's about too too much stuff, arguably. You know, once you've told the story about pigeons and, and, and home life and the history of the cultural and artistic history of the home and touching on the kind of political dimension of it, it felt, you know, the book was the book. I suppose I had a very clear sense that I wanted to tell a few distinct stories that would kind of, you know, interrelate and fly, like, you know, the image I had authors are awful when they talk about the, the metaphorical kind of processes involved in writing books but I did have the idea that they would kind of fly like a kit, like a kit exactly so the, the various narratives would come to the head at various different times and a, alongside that I wanted to give a sense of, of homecoming I wanted a book to kind of in, enact some circularity or there's a lovely quotation from Mary Douglas that I use at the end of the book where she talks about all great works of literature not that I'm saying this is one but kind of all epic and, and biblical literature all conforming to a kind of 
homecoming structure that the the, the, the the cyclical nature of kind of storytelling seemed structurally important to me so running through the book is this account of a the long pigeon race from Thurzo that my birds participated in last summer and I won't ruin the ending for you but um you can see where it ends up so yeah to answer the question about the politics I think it's kind of there implicitly in lots of the in lots of the topics that are raised in the book but I didn't necessarily think it was a, I don't think of it as a political book particularly I, I won't give away spoilers at all, but as becomes clear through the book, when people are flying pigeons in races, these pigeons, you know, some of them get taken by sparrowhawks, some of them get randomly lost, some don't come home for two weeks or three months. Mm. How, as a pigeon fancier, do you feel, if you like, towards your individual pigeons? I mean, you know, does one sentimentalise them? Do you, you know, you've given them names. Yeah. Do you, I, I what do. sort of relationship I think do you I'm have a, with them? Well, I was, I have, I, I was very sentimental about them, probably too sentimental about them in terms of, or most of the pigeon flyers in the club would say. I was, my pigeons do have names and I, and I felt a great deal of kind of separation anxiety when they were taken and for races and, and, and released. You know, it's partly that story of what we were discussing earlier, the question of kind of not knowing quite what's happening to them when they're, when they're up in the air that is both a kind of fascinating source of imaginary stories, but also is, is quite nerve-wracking when you're sitting in your garden waiting for your pigeons to come home. And of course, doesn't you don't know. So the, the Thurso race that I sent birds to last summer, I know what happened. I, I didn't get all my birds back. That's I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, but I do know what happened to a few of them. So I got a phone call from a guy in Edinburgh who was like, you know, I found your found one of your birds dead in a gutter and it's been run over. And another pigeon kind of gave up halfway through and went into a, a, a fellow fancier's pigeon loft. Just finally, there's, there's, I think there's only two photographs in the book. There's a you few more. You don't have any colour plate. Well, you, you've got... don't have a colour plate section. But the killer photograph of this is a pigeon paparazzo. There's a, there's a pigeon <laughs> with a camera strapped to its chest. Yeah. From the... Can you tell me a bit about that? Because yeah. I think that's the most... just. It's remarkable. It's it's Julius Neubronner, who was a um, a German apothecary, who in 1908 patented his his system of taking aerial photographs. And that involved so he invented a tiny, very lightweight camera. I assume it must have been made of cardboard, although it's hard to tell from the photo, and with a little timer on it. And he attached these cameras to his flock of homing pigeons, and then would fly them over targets or you know. So he he used it, I think in the beginning just to see what his birds were up to and then he had a, he had a, ambitions to use it for kind of military intelligence and so on and it was never particularly well used but yeah he, he so he took some kind of extraordinary and quite beautiful photos of 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 landscapes using this system and he he didn't it didn't make his fortune but i was kind of inspired by his experiments to i bought a little camera myself off ebay and and built a little harness for my pigeons and flew them around my loft and so i've got some video footage of them flying around the kind of bio drone um, of of the of the avian world. Well, it's the future. John Day, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better, or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.